Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. Yes, that could mean you too. The workouts have been designed to fit into your life so you can move when you can. The 15 minutes you can squeeze in before work. The 20 minutes you get to yourself while the baby naps. The half hour you can spare at lunch. There's a routine for you no matter what your day looks like. A reminder as well, this is included in your Mum Mia subscription. If you are a Mum Mia subscriber, you already have access to Move. Download the Move app and log in with your Mum Mia login. Head to move.mamamia.com.au and use code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands we record this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, as well as the Wanarua and the Gamilaroi people. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hi there from Mamma Mia, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to the Quickie Junior, getting your family up to speed weekly. This week, we're going to find out what happens if you find treasure and why it doesn't matter what shape your body is when it comes to being great at sport. But first, you might have heard about a thing called long COVID. Well, today we're going to find out what we know about it and how we can avoid getting it. The first cases of COVID were first reported in December 2019. Within a few months in March 2020, some people on social media started to say that long after they'd first caught the disease, they were still feeling very sick. These people called themselves the COVID long haulers, like the long distance truck drivers, and that's where the name long COVID came from. The World Health Organization is the part of the United Nations that responds to major international health crises. It started taking long COVID seriously in July 2020 after a group of British patients called the Long COVID SOS Advocacy Group made a YouTube video to tell the world that they were still suffering from lingering symptoms of the illness. Some of the symptoms that people spoke about on the video included shortness of breath, increased heart rate, chest pains, fatigue, brain fog, muscle aches and exhaustion. It can be hard for those around us to understand how ill we are. It's confusing and scary. Our numbers are growing and we need to be taken seriously. We need rehab, research and recognition. In October 2021, the World Health Organization made long COVID a disease in its own right. If you are still getting symptoms more than three months after a confirmed case of COVID and you have no other disease that could have made you ill, you may officially have long COVID. There are a lot of things we still don't know about long COVID, such as what causes it, how best to treat it, and why do people get sick from it in so many different ways. To help us answer some of these questions is disease detective, epidemiologist, Professor Adrian Esterman. Professor, are we any clearer as to why some people get long COVID and others don't? Is there a group who are more susceptible? There are some risk factors for long COVID that we know of. So they include older people, females, and those who have a more severe initial acute infection. But apart from that, we know very little about why some people get long COVID and others don't. For that matter, we know very little about why some people get seriously ill and others don't. 
So I'm guessing from that response, we're not any closer to finding out what actually causes it yet? Well, it's thought that it might be something to do with blood clots or inflammation, but these are all just, you know, educated guesses at the moment. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare have been funded to establish a long COVID registry. So that means that people who've been diagnosed with COVID will be followed up over many months, if not years. Their data will be matched to hospital inpatient records and potentially even to GP records. And because of that, we would have a much better idea of what causes long COVID. But that's not going to happen for a long time yet. For those people who do have long COVID symptoms, do they continue to test positive for COVID over that long period of time? Or are they not returning a positive rat or PCR and still experiencing those symptoms? No, so basically, if you've been infected, you normally shed virus particles for between seven and 10 days after you've been diagnosed. And that means that most people by the end of day 10 aren't infectious anymore. So when we're talking about long COVID, we're talking about three months after you've been diagnosed. So you wouldn't be shedding virus particles then. What role are vaccines playing in long COVID? Do they decrease the chance of you actually ending up with long COVID? Are they playing any role at all? Yes, they do. Because if you're vaccinated, you're less likely to have symptoms, less likely to have severe disease, and that alone would reduce your chance of having long COVID. Where are we at as far as treating long COVID? It must be difficult seeing as there are hundreds of different symptoms to really pin down a particular treatment that helps everybody. But is there anything that we're seeing helps alleviate some of these symptoms or at least deals with some of them? Look, it's very difficult. So, for example, if you can think about chronic fatigue syndrome, which which a lot of people have suffered from for years, there's almost no treatment for that. So one of the most common symptoms of long COVID is extreme fatigue. So for many of these things, we simply don't have a treatment. What's happened now is that around the country, most states and territories are setting up long COVID clinics. And these are manned by a whole mixture of different disciplines from heart specialists, respiratory specialists, psychiatrists, because a lot of people with long COVID end up with severe depression. And they will use a multidisciplinary team to try and work out the most appropriate treatment for each person. But at the moment, there are no set treatments. It's just too difficult. Not getting COVID in the first place is the best way to avoid getting long COVID. And we know that social distancing, washing our hands, wearing a mask and getting vaccinated are the best ways we can do that. With all those things, hopefully we can keep ourselves away from that annoying COVID virus that's been hanging around way past its welcome. Imagine you're a mountain climber way up near the top of the highest mountain in France. Suddenly, something poking out of the ice catches your eye and you decide to take a closer look. You bend down, sweep away the snow and find a small metal box. You crack the box open and inside you find a cloth bag filled with emeralds, rubies, sapphires and other precious gemstones. Whoa! Sounds like a movie, right? But that's exactly what happened to a French mountain climber back in 2013. He did the right thing and handed the jewels into the French police. How they got there remained a mystery for many years. It turned out that the box of jewels had been in a plane that had crashed into the mountain 55 years earlier. The climber tried to find the family of the original owner of the jewels so he could give them back, but he couldn't locate them. 
Under French law, that meant he was allowed to keep half of what he found, worth nearly $250,000. The other half stayed with the local council, who put them on display in a museum. It's an incredible story where finders really did become keepers. But what are the rules when you do find something of great value, whether it's a $20 note on the street or a bag of gemstones on top of a mountain? Wayne Morgan is an Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Education in the Australian National University's College of Law. Wayne, is there a line where you have to hand something in a dollar value, perhaps? Okay, well, perhaps the first thing to say is, no, there's certainly not any dollar amount. And if you find any property, really there is an obligation to try and find the owner. So, you know, no matter how valuable that property is, the law does say you have that obligation. And indeed, if you make no attempt to find the true owner of the goods, particularly if that would be possible, say, for example, if you find a wallet in the street and it has some ID in it, if you make no attempt to find the owner when that would be possible, you can actually be guilty of theft. Either the general offence of theft or some jurisdictions in Australia have a specific offence of theft by finding. So no matter what the value of the property, yeah, it is always an obligation that you have to take it to the police so that they can attempt to find the true owner. What if we happen to find something of some historical value? Is there any kind of, obviously, moral compass should make you hand it in to someone because it's of some significance? But if we do find something of historical value, is there any extra laws that govern those kinds of items and artefacts? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Yes, there may be, particularly under legislation. And the most likely type of legislation that might impact would be heritage legislation in the various states and territories. So, for example, in New South Wales, there is definitely legislation governing archaeological and heritage material that may be found, particularly, say, if you're excavating a site. And those types of property certainly do have to be handed in and usually will be end up owned by the government rather than the person who found them. One area that does seem to be a little bit grey is people who go, say, for example, to the beach or to public land and scope it with a metal detector and they end up finding, you know, people's wedding rings or engagement rings, diamond rings, etc. Can they keep those or do they have to hand them in? Look, again, yes, that same obligation does apply. You always, whenever you find lost property, you have an obligation to try and find the true owner. And the best way to do that is by handing it into the police. So, yes, you always have that obligation, including if you're metal detecting. But as I said, when you hand that into the police, you have every right to say to them, if the true owner can't be found or if no one comes forward, I want that returned to me. And if you've been metal detecting on public land, say like at a beach, and if your fine doesn't come under some of that legislation I mentioned before, like heritage legislation, well then yes, the police have an obligation to return it to you and you will end up owning it if the true owner doesn't come forward. So yeah, it might be worth getting out that metal detector and seeing what you can discover. So what should you do if you do find something of value? Peter Price, the chairman of Crime Stoppers Australia, says you should go to your local police station, but make sure you don't just hand it over. You need to take it to the police because they will actually then do some research and find out who the original owner was. Depending on which country you're in, some people either trust the police or they don't trust the police. 
But it's probably worth you know making a note of who you handed into, what time of the day it was, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got a record for your own purposes. I mean, even if you did it in Australia where we trust the police implicitly, you should probably get a record of that particular event. If you find something of value, you should understand that it probably is of value to somebody else. So it was originally somebody else's. And if it's of value to them, then it might be quite important to them. So if you decide to keep it and not disclose it to anybody, the question for you is, can you live with your conscience? And I guess, you know, in some instances, people will go, well, I found this finder's keepers, it's all mine. But there's some instances where people will actually hand the quits in. So remember, finders aren't always keepers. But if you do the right thing and the original owner isn't found, you could be the one who does get to be the keeper in the end. When you try to picture the perfect athlete in your mind, you might think of a tall and muscular man or woman. Or maybe if acrobatics is your favourite sport, you might think of a thin and flexible girl. In fact, famous athletes come in all shapes and sizes. But often people who want to grow up to become athletes think their body is the wrong shape and they often get discouraged. Some of the best athletes have even been the subject of body shaming, a form of bullying where someone picks on someone else about the way they look. For example, it happened to Liesl Jones. Liesl is one of the all-time greats of Australian swimming, an Olympic gold medal-winning breaststroker. She was the first Aussie swimmer to compete in four Olympic Games. But at the 2012 Olympics, just before she won a silver medal in the medley relay, her picture was put on the front page of a newspaper, saying she was out of shape and that she didn't fit into her swimsuit properly. Despite being an elite athlete who was still winning medals, Lisa was being body shamed. That's pretty harsh, and she's not the only one. At the Rio Olympics, Mexican gymnast Alexa Moreno was body shamed because she isn't tiny like the other competitors, and Ethiopian swimmer Robel Kiros was picked on for not being muscly or toned like the other swimmers in his heat, even though he'd earned the right to be there just like everyone else. Even Simone Biles, the American gymnast considered to perhaps be the greatest athlete of all time, was told she was overweight in comparison to some of her competitors. It can happen to anyone. Athletes, celebrities, even you and me. You may even body shame yourself by telling yourself negative things about how you look. For Sarah Perkins, who currently plays for Hawthorne in the AFLW, it has been something that she's had to deal with since stepping out onto the field in the first year of the competition for the Adelaide Crows. Thankfully, I play a team sport, so it's always coming back to me as long as I'm playing my team game and doing the things that I need to do for the team, that I know I'm in the right spot. But I'm also really lucky that I've got 29 other teammates who support me as well as coaches and support staff so you know you really lean on them I guess on and off the field and yeah thankfully it's a good environment to get obviously a lot of positive feedback but then the constructive feedback the right way when you know most of the things you may hear online or you read or see um, may not come across as the nicest things that you want to hear. How do you respond to people who say that your body type isn't the way that an AFLW footballer should look like, even though the results on the field say otherwise, you've won a premiership, you are, you know, great in front of goal, you're obviously good at the game. But how do you respond to those people who say you just aren't the right shape? I probably guess I say what is the right shape when you look at football as a whole, 
even in the men's space, there's guys of, you know, all different heights, different sizes. Some guys really tall and skinny. Some are tall and built really strong. So for me, it's just, well, what is the right size to be a footballer? So that's something that I just have to remind myself. And yeah, I can't help the way that I look and obviously work every day to make myself feel better as a person and, and be more confident in the way that I appear to the wider community. But um, yeah, I guess for me, it's always, well, what is the ideal shape of a, an AFLW player? Because there's nothing in a rule book that says you have to look or be a certain way. Now, you are renowned for being a great goal kicker. Does any of that just come naturally to you or have you literally just had to work really, really hard to get good at that? Well, I think my average would probably say otherwise in terms of how good I am in front of goals, but it's probably something that I thank my brother for. And, you know, since I was a little kid, the two of us would be out the street or out the back having kicking challenges day in, day out. So, you know, we used to kick between a tree and a light pole just out the front of our family home that mum and dad owned. And then we'd have out the back where there'd be a garage at one end and a carport at the other end whether it was a soccer ball or a footy ball, you know, or anything else like that. Yeah, we'd constantly challenge each other to try and kick the most goals or score the most points in whatever game we were playing. So it's something that takes a lot of practice. And thankfully, I spent most of my childhood competing with my brother. So that's probably where it comes from. Sarah, what would you say to a young athlete who might be listening to this, who might have also been told that maybe they're not the typical shape for the sport that they play, or they're told that they need to change the shape that they are in order to be better? What would you say to them about how to handle that kind of thing and how to keep pushing forward through some negativity? For me, it's just I keep challenging what is the right size of an athlete and what does that look like? But also, I think I challenge myself to be better every day. So I've obviously been in a few clubs and, you know, I've been knocked back a few times. But for me, it's just about never giving up and constantly pushing to be a better athlete, but also just a better person in general. So that's something I pass on to to any kid that I coach or come across. It's just about how can I be the best version of me, but also the best athlete as well. Sarah and other athletes like her have shown that you don't have to look a certain way to be really great at sport. You just have to be passionate, dedicated and practice heaps. What shape you are won't matter when you score that goal, take that wicket or perform that move perfectly. That's the Quickie Junior for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Tom Lyon and scripting assistance by Peter Green. Catch you next week. 